Number five, he aims to induce reckless trifling with God. When he fails to bring us to distrust God, he seeks to fling us to the opposite extreme and get us to act presumptuously. This is seen in his second temptation of Christ. Since you trust God fully, cast thyself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Beware of tempting God under the guise of strong faith by refusing to take wise precautions, use legitimate means, or needlessly expose yourself to danger. Number six, he aims to fix our hearts on worldly things. This is seen in his third temptation of Christ when he showed him all its kingdoms and their glory. There are many subtle forms of this temptation, such as coveting a beautiful home, aspiring after a high position in business, following the fashions of the ungodly in our dress, conforming to their ways in our hours of recreation. If we more definitely sought grace to heed that exhortation, be content with such things as ye have, Hebrews 13.5, we should be delivered from many snares and sorrows. Number seven, he aims to prevent the denying of self and the daily taking up of the cross. This comes out clearly in Matthew 16.21-24. Let the hearer slowly ponder those verses. Spare thyself is the motto which the devil would have us live by. Beware of lazing in the evenings instead of redeeming the time. Ephesians 5.16 Number 8. He aims to blind the mind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, And becloud our judgment. He often accomplishes this by the scriptures themselves causing us to wrongly understand them or use them irreverently. When we ought to do as David did in Psalm 119.60, he tells us, He that believeth shall not make haste. When we ought to rebuke sin in a brother, Leviticus 19.17, he quotes to us, Judge not, that ye be not judged. Sometimes he blinds people's minds by the sound of words, like, This is my body, or all, in John 12:32, and so forth. Number nine, he aims to catch away the word of God out of our hearts. Luke 8:12. Oftentimes he is very successful in this because we have failed to definitely seek God's intervention, or because we have failed to fix the scriptures in our mind by meditating upon them. Satan is also catching away the seed by making people believe that many portions of God's word are not for them, but for the Jews. Number ten, he aims to afflict our bodies so that they are incapacitated for the performance of duties or of spiritual exercises. Luke 13.11 He often causes us to eat too much, 
so that we are dull and drowsy when reading the word or hearing God's servants preach. He produces lassitude and weakness, but God can renew our strength. Isaiah 40, 29-31 Now, dear friend, turn into definite daily believing prayer what has been before you, that God would deliver you from these satanic snares. Be constantly on the alert to recognize the devil's approach to you through persons and things. Remember that it was while men slept that he sowed his tares. Matthew 13.25 Plead unto God, 1 John 3.8 And beg him to make it good in your life. Arthur Pink Study number 6 Assurance Can true believers be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and that they shall persevere therein unto salvation? Answer Such as truly believe in Christ and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before Him. 1 John 2.3 May Without extraordinary revelation by faith grounded upon the truth of God's promises and by the Spirit enabling them to discern in themselves those graces to which the promises of life are made. 1 John 3, 14, 18, 19, 21, and 24, Hebrews 5, 11, 12, and so forth, and bearing witness with their spirits that they are the children of God, Romans 8.16, be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and shall persevere therein unto salvation. 1 John 5.13 and 2 Timothy 1.12 Assurance is the believer's full conviction that through the work of Christ alone, Received by faith, he is in possession of a salvation in which he will be eternally kept. And this assurance rests only upon the scripture promises to him who believes. The careful hearer will perceive a considerable difference of doctrine in the two quotations given. The former is the product of the Puritans. The latter is a fair sample of what the boasted enlightenment of the twentieth century has brought forth. The one is extracted from the Westminster Catechism of Faith, the doctrinal standard of the Presbyterians. The other is taken from the Schofield Bible. In the one, the balance of truth is helpfully preserved. In the second, the work and witness of the Holy Spirit is altogether ignored. This example is only one out of scores we could cite, which sadly illustrates how far we have gone backwards. The answer given by the Puritans 
is calculated to lead to heart searchings. The definition, if such it may be called, of the popular dispensationalists is likely to bolster up the deluded. This brings us to consider more definitely Part 1, its nature. Let us begin by asking the question, Assurance of what? That the Holy Scriptures are the inspired and infallible Word of God? No. That is not our subject. Assured that salvation is by grace alone? No. For neither is that our immediate theme. Rather, the assurance that I am no longer in a state of nature, but in a state of grace, and this not as a mere conjectural persuasion, but as resting on sure evidence. It is a well-authenticated realization that not only has my mind been enlightened concerning the great truths of God's Word, but that a supernatural work has been wrought in my soul, which has made me a new creature in Christ Jesus. A scriptural assurance of salvation is that knowledge which the Holy Spirit imparts to the heart through the Scriptures, that my faith is not a natural one, but the faith of God's elect, Titus 1.1, that my love for Christ is sincere and not fictitious, that my daily walk is that of a regenerated man. The assurance of the saints is, as the Westminster divines said, by the Spirit enabling them to discern in themselves those graces to which the promises of life are made. Let us seek to amplify that statement. At the commencement of Matthew 5, we find the Lord Jesus pronouncing blessed a certain class of people. They are not named as believers or saints, but instead are described by their characters. And it is only by comparing ourselves and others with the description that the Lord Jesus there gave that we are enabled to identify such. First he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to have a feeling sense that in me that is, in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7.18 It is the realization that I am utterly destitute of anything and everything which could commend me favorably to God's notice. It is to recognize that I am a spiritual bankrupt. It is the consciousness even now, not years ago when I was first awakened, that I am without strength and wisdom, that I am a helpless creature completely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. 
To be poor in spirit is the opposite of Laodiceanism, which consists of self-complacency and self-sufficiency. Imagining I am rich and in need of nothing. Blessed are they that mourn. It is one thing to believe the theory that I am spiritually a poverty-stricken pauper. It is quite another to have an acute sense of it in my soul. Where the latter exists, there are deep exercises of heart which evoke the bitter cry, My leanness, my leanness, woe unto me. Isaiah 24:16. There is deep anguish that there is so little growth in grace, so little fruit to God's glory, such a wretched return made for his abounding goodness unto me. This is accompanied by an ever-deepening discovery of the depths of corruption which is still within me. The soul finds that when it would do good, evil is present with him. Romans 7.21 It is grieved by the motions of unbelief, the swellings of pride, the surgings of rebellion against God. Instead of peace, there is war within. Instead of realizing his holy aspirations, the Blessed One is daily defeated until the stricken heart cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7.24 Blessed are the meek. Meekness is yieldedness. It is the opposite of self-willed. Meekness is pliability and meltedness of heart, which makes me submissive and responsive to God's will. Now observe, dear hearer, these first three marks of the blessed consist not in outward actions, but of inward graces, not in showy deeds, but in states of soul. Note, too, that they are far from being characteristics which will render their possessor pleasing and popular to the world. He who feels himself to be a spiritual pauper will not be welcomed by the wealthy Laodiceans. He who daily mourns for his leanness, his barrenness, his sinfulness will not be courted by the self-righteous. He who is truly meek will not be sought after by the self-assertive. No, he will be scorned by the Pharisees and looked upon with contempt by those who boast they are out of Romans 7 and living in Romans 8. These lovely graces which are of great price in the sight of God are despised by the bloated professors of the day. We must not now review the additional marks of the blessed named by the Redeemer at the beginning of his precious sermon on the mount, but at one other we will just glance. Blessed are they which 
are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you for my sake. Matthew 5, 10 and 11 Observe that this antagonism is not evoked by wrongdoing or by a well-grounded offense. They who are morose, selfish, haughty, evil speakers, cruel, have no right to shelter behind this beatitude when people retaliate against them. No, it is where Christliness of character and conduct is assailed, where practical godliness condemns the worldly ways of empty professors that fires their enmity, where humble but vital piety cannot be tolerated by those who are destitute of the same. Blessed, said Christ, are the spiritual whom the carnal hates, the gentle sheep whom the dogs snap at. Now, dear hearer, seek grace to honestly measure yourself by these criteria. Do such heavenly graces adorn your soul? Are these marks of those whom the Son of God pronounces blessed stamped upon your character? Are you truly poor in spirit? We say truly, for it is easy to adopt expressions and call ourselves names. If you are offended when someone else applies them to you, it shows you do not mean what you say. Do you mourn over your lack of conformity to Christ, the feebleness of your faith, the coldness of your love? Are you meek? Has your will been broken and your heart made submissive to God? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do your use of the means of grace, your searchings of the scriptures, your prayers, Events it? Are you merciful or censorious and harsh? Are you pure in heart, grieved when an impure imagination assails? If not, you have no right to regard yourself as blessed. Instead, you are under the curse of a holy and sin-hating God. It is not, are these spiritual graces fully developed within you? They never are in this life. But are they truly present at all? It is not, are you completely emptied of self? But is it your sincere desire and earnest prayer to be so? It is not do you mourn as deeply as you ought to over indwelling sin and its activities? But have you felt at all the plague of your own heart? 1 Kings 8.38 It is not is your meekness all that can be desired, but is there unmistakable proof that the root of it has actually been communicated to your soul. 
there is a growth. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. But that which has no existence can have no growth. Has the seed, 1 Peter 1.23, of grace been planted in your heart? That is the point which each of us is called upon to determine. Not to assume or take for granted, but to make sure, Second Peter 1.10, of, and this is done when we faithfully examine our hearts to discover whether or not there is in them those spiritual graces to which the promises of God are addressed. While gospel assurance is the opposite of carnal presumption and of unbelieving doubts, yet it is far from being opposed to thorough self-examination. But alas, so many have been taught and by men highly reputed for their orthodoxy that if it is not actually wrong, it is highly injurious for a Christian to look within. There is a balance of truth to be observed here, as everywhere. That one might become too introspective is readily granted, but that a Christian is never to search his own heart, test his faith, scrutinize his motives, and make sure that he has the root of the matter within him, Job 19.28 is contradicted by many plain scriptures. Regeneration is a work which God performs within us. Philippians 1.6 And as eternal destiny hinges on the same, it behooves every serious soul to take the utmost pains and ascertain whether or not this miracle of grace has been wrought within him. When Paul stood in doubt of the state of the Galatians, he said, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Chapter 4, verse 19. So to the Colossians he wrote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Chapter 1, verse 27. For everyone that doeth evil, hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be discovered. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in or by God. John 3, 20 and 21. Here is one of the vital differences between the unregenerate and the regenerate the unbelieving and the believing. Unbelief is far more than an error of judgment or speculative mistake into which an honest mind may fall. It proceeds from heart enmity against God. The natural man, while left to himself, hates the searching light of God. Verse 19, Fearful, lest it should disquiet the conscience expose the fallacy of 
his presumptuous confidence and shatter his false peace. But it is the very reverse with him who has been given an honest and good heart. He who acts sincerely and conscientiously desiring to know and do the whole will of God without reserve, welcomes the light. The genuine Christian believes what Scripture says concerning the natural heart, namely, that it is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17.9, and the surest proof that he does believe this solemn fact is that he is deeply concerned lest a deceived heart hath turned him aside, Isaiah 44.20, and caused him to believe that all is well with his soul when in reality he is yet in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He believes what God's word says about Satan, the great deluder, and trembles lest After all, the devil has beguiled him with a false peace. Such a possibility, such a likelihood, occasions him much exercise of soul. Like David of old and every other genuine saint, he communes with his own heart, Psalm 4, 4, and his spirit makes diligent search, Psalm 77, 6. He turns to the light of holy writ, anxious to have his character and conduct scrutinized by the same, desiring to have his deeds made manifest as to whether they proceed from self-love or real love to God. It is not that we are here seeking to foster any confidence in self, Rather do we desire to promote real confidence toward God. It is one thing to make sure that I love God, and it is quite another for me to find satisfaction in that love. The self-examination which the scriptures enjoin in 1 Corinthians 11.28, for example, is not for the purpose of finding something within to make me more acceptable to God, nor as a ground of my justification before Him, but is with the object of discovering whether Christ is being formed in me. There are two extremes to be guarded against. Such an undue occupation with the work of the Spirit within that the heart is taken right off from the work of Christ for his people, and such a one-sided emphasis upon the imputed righteousness of Christ, that the righteousness imparted by the Spirit is ignored or disparaged. It is impossible that the third person of the Trinity should take up his abode within a soul without effecting a radical change within him. And it is this which I need to make sure of. It is the Spirit's work within the heart, which is the only infallible proof of salvation. It is perfectly true that as I look within and seek 
to faithfully examine my heart in the light of Scripture, that the work of the Spirit is not all I shall discover there. No, indeed, much corruption still remains. The genuine Christian finds clear evidence of two natures, two contrary principles at work within him. This is brought out plainly, not only in Romans 7 and Galatians 5.17, but strikingly too in the Song of Solomon. What will ye see in the Shulamite? As it were the company of two armies. Chapter 6, verse 13. Hence it is that in her present state the bride says, I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the Kents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 5. And again, I sleep, but my heart waketh. Chapter 5, verse 2. Strange language to the natural man, but quite intelligible to the spiritual. And therefore is it also that the renewed soul so often finds suited to his case the prayer of Mark 9.24. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. It is because the real Christian finds within himself so much that is conflicting that it is difficult for him to be sure of his actual state. And therefore does he cry, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Psalm 26.2 They who are filled with a carnal assurance, a fleshly confidence, a vain presumption, feel no need for asking the Lord to prove them. So completely has Satan deceived them, that they imagined it would be an act of unbelief so to do. Poor souls, they call evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. Isaiah 5.20 One of the surest marks of regeneration is that the soul frequently cries, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Perhaps some of our hearers are still ready to say, I do not see that there needs to be so much difficulty in ascertaining whether one is in a lost or saved condition. I am resting upon John 5.24, and that is sufficient for me. But allow us to point out, dear friend, that John 5.24 is not a promise which Christ gave to an individual disciple, but instead a doctrinal declaration which he made in the hearing of a mixed multitude. If the objector replies, I believe that verse does contain a promise and I am going to hold fast to it. Then may we lovingly ask, Are you sure that it belongs to you? 
that John 5.24 contains a precious promise we gladly acknowledge. But to whom is it made? Let us examine it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That promise is given to a definitely defined character, namely, he that heareth my word. Now, dear hearer, can it be truthfully said that you are one that heareth his word? Are you sure? Do not be misled by the mere sound of words. The reference here is not to the hearing of the outward ear, but to the response of the heart. In the days that he sojourned on earth, there were many of whom the Lord Jesus had to say that hearing with the outward ear, they hear not with the heart. Matthew 13.13 So it is still to hear spiritually to hear savingly is to heed Matthew 18.15, is to obey Matthew 17.5, John 10.27, and Hebrews 3.7. Ah, are you obedient? Have you searched the Scriptures diligently in order to discover His commandments? And that not to satisfy an idle curiosity, but desiring to put them into practice? Do you love His commandments? Are you actually doing them? Not once or twice, but regularly, as the main tenor of your life. For note, it is not hear, but heareth. Does someone object? All of this is getting away from the simplicity of Christ. You are taking us from the Word and seeking to get us occupied with ourselves. Well, does not Scripture say, Take heed unto thyself, 1 Timothy 4.16? But it may be answered, There cannot be any certainty while we are occupied with our wretched selves. I prefer to abide by the written word. To this we have no objection at all. What we are here pressing is the vital necessity of making sure that the portions of the word you cite or are resting upon fairly and squarely belong to you. The hearer may refer me to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, Acts 16.31, and ask, Is not that plain enough? But have you ever noted, dear friend, to whom the apostles addressed those words, and all the attendant circumstances? It was neither to a promiscuous crowd, nor to a careless and unconcerned soul that the apostles said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Rather was it to an awakened, deeply exercised, penitent soul, who had taken his place in the dust and in deepest anguish cried, What must I do to be saved? However, 
What is the use you are making of Acts 16.31? You answer, This, those words are divinely simple. I believe in Christ, and therefore I am saved. God says so, and the devil cannot shake me. Possibly he is not at all anxious to. He may be well content for you to retain a carnal confidence. But observe, dear friend, the apostles did not tell the stricken jailer to believe on Jesus, nor believe in Christ, but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to savingly believe? We have sought to answer this question at length in our recent articles on saving faith. But let us now give a brief reply. John 1.12 makes it clear that to believe is to receive, to receive Christ Jesus the Lord, Colossians 2.6. Christ is the Savior of none until he is welcomed as Lord. The immediate context shows plainly the particular character in which Christ is there viewed. He came unto his own, John 1.11. He was their rightful owner, because their Lord. But his own received him not. No, they declared, we will not have this man to reign over us. Luke 19.14. Ah, dear friend, this is searching. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? We do not ask, are you resting on his finished work? But have you bowed to his scepter and owned his authority in a practical way? Have you disowned your own sinful lordship? If not, you certainly have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the promise of Acts 16.31 does not belong to you. Now if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8.9 This is just as much a part of God's word as is Acts 16.31. Why do we not hear it quoted as frequently? And how can anyone know that he is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ? Only by discovering within him the fruits of his regenerating and sanctifying grace. Not that either these fruits or the good works of the Christian are in any wise or to any degree meritorious. No, no but as the evidence of his divine sonship, Arthur Payne. God willing to be continued in the October studies. Study number seven, Food Assured. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, have ye any meat? John 21, 4 and 5 Every incident in relation to Christ and His love to His people becomes interesting. And here is a very sweet one. Christ was now risen from the dead, but His disciples had only faint and indistinct notions of the immense importance of this glorious event. They therefore were returned to their employment of fishing as unconscious of 
what the resurrection from the dead should mean. All night they had been employed in a fruitless pursuit, and when the morning began to dawn, Christ stood on the shore. But their eyes were holden, that they should not know him. My soul, learn from hence that Christ is often with thee, often looking on thee, and often providing and preparing for thee, while thou art ignorant of his presence and his love. He speaks to them before they speak to him. Yes, if we love him, it is because he first loved us. And what doth Christ say? Children, have ye any meat? Precious account of Christ. My soul, turn over the several blessed particulars shown here in it. He calls them children. Yes, his people are his children, for he is the everlasting father as well as their husband and brother. Indeed, he stands in the place of all relations and fills all. My soul, if thou didst, but consider this and keep the remembrance of it always uppermost in thine heart, how wouldst thou delight to go to Christ as to a brother born for adversity, a friend that loveth at all times, and one who sticketh closer than a brother? Observe how earnest the Lord is concerning their present state and safety. Oh, that every child of God in Christ would learn from hence that Christ takes part in all that concerns them. Surely this solicitude of Christ takes in the whole of a believer's warfare. Are they poor in this world? Do they seek their bread out of desolate places? Like the disciples, do they toil all night and gain nothing? And shall not he who providently caters for the sparrow know it and provide for them amidst all their manifold necessities? Look up, my poor afflicted brother, if perchance such an one should hear these words. Look up, I say, and behold Christ in this endearing instance of tenderness to the wants of his few faithful disciples. He that caused a miraculous draught of fishes to supply the pressing needs of his disciples can and will equally now regard the state of all his redeemed ones under their various temporal straits and difficulties. The promise is absolute and hath never failed. Thy bread shall be given and thy water shall be sure and thy defense shall be the munitions of the rocks, Isaiah 33.16. And as for spiritual famine, when at any time the waters of the sanctuary run low, Christ is the Almighty Governor, our spiritual Joseph, through all the Egyptian state of his people here below. And he speaks to everyone, yea, to thee, my soul, in the number. Children, have ye any meat? Lamb of God, though thou art now in thine exalted state, yet not all the church in glory above, nor all the hallelujahs of heaven, 
can detain thee one moment from knowing and visiting and supplying all the manifold wants of thy church in grace here below. Doth Christ say to me, Hast thou any meat? Lord, I would answer, Thou art the bread of life and the bread of God, yea, the living bread which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. Precious Christ, be thou my bread, my life, my hope, my fullness, my joy, and my portion forever. Robert Hawker, 1825 Holy Bridegroom, glorious head of thy beloved bride, by thee may I be daily fed and nourished by thy side, forsaking all the worthless toys of vain carnality, tasting of everlasting joys and immortality. Fix thy great love within my heart that I may give thee praise, and never let me more depart from thy most holy ways, plainly showing to all around that I am thine indeed, that grace may over sin abound as of the holy seed. Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with thy unchanging love, that through thy grace we may aspire to reign with thee above. Let us not sleep as others do, but earnest be in prayer, looking for and hastening to our meeting in the air. Edward Kirby, 1871 This concludes the September studies. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.